Before you jump into this sermon, I want to make a quick correction regarding something I said early in the sermon. In explaining a literary technique used frequently in biblical narratives, I misspoke. Properly equipping you to meaningfully and thoughtfully engage with the full depth and beauty of Scripture is important to me, so I want to make sure we get it right. The literary form is known as a pericope, P-E-R-I-C-O-P-E. I read it from my notes and pronounced it as periscope. We love you. We pray the Holy Spirit uses this sermon to encourage your heart, flame your passion for Jesus, and mold you more closely into his image. As the sort of shuffling takes place, if you've got a Bible, you want to open it up to Luke chapter 20. We're going to finish that chapter this morning, verses 41 to 47. And before we jump into that and get started, I just want to take a quick moment, um, acknowledge mothers, moms, happy Mother's Day. Uh, My own mom is here, right there. Uh, Yeah, my mom was, my mom's great. You might, you might have kids in any, any stage, moms, you might have newborns and so you're not sleeping very well. You might have toddlers and you're still not sleeping very well. Uh, Elementary school-aged kids and you're right in the thick of just trying to teach them how to function as like normal-ish adult, uh, fully functional human beings. It could be uh, middle school and high school age students who are convinced that they already know everything it takes to function as a fully functioning human being and they don't need any of your help whatsoever. You might have college students or adult children and your role has transitioned a little bit more to cheering them on from a bit of a distance and hoping they remember to call every once in a while. Um, whatever season of life it is that you're in in the middle of that, there is shifting and changing and growth in what it means to be mom and what that looks like. Uh, There is grace from the Lord as you engage with that and as you sort of grow up and mature even into your own motherhood. And we as a church just want to take a second and, and recognize you, honor you. We're thankful for who you are, the role you play within the life of this congregation, certainly, but the role you play in the life of your children. We also recognize that today... Uh, along with the celebration for many people over the course of this morning, there is pain in the middle of this day. It's possible that you and your family have experienced the loss of a child, whether that's through miscarriage or later in life. It's also true that there are a number of people in our congregation, in all of our services, who either are not married, wish they were, and wish that they had children, It's also true that there are some in the life of our congregation who, for whatever reason, the Lord has not blessed them with children. And so in the middle of this day that is a celebration, uh, there's also tinges of sadness and grief in the middle of that. And it's a wonderful opportunity for us as a congregation to do exactly what scripture says, which is to rejoice with those who rejoice, but also to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and to just be the full expression of the body of Christ to one another in the middle of something as kind of seemingly regular as Mother's Day. And so uh, for those who are moms, we love you, we honor you, we're thankful for you. For those who experience pain in the middle of this day as well, uh, we see you and we love you and we honor you as well. If you guys would join me in prayer. God, thank you for this day. 
Thank you for the mothers in this congregation and the way that it is that uh, they serve, disciple, care for, love, encourage, and support their children. God, thank you for the ways that you pour out your grace and your compassion, your patience on them. God, I pray today that they feel honored and cherished, loved, respected, appreciated. God, I pray that their days full of affirmation and uh, just an overflow of support and care for who they are. God, we also pray for those in our midst this morning who do experience a measure of pain in the middle of this day. God, would you meet them in the middle of that? Would your presence be near to them? God, would we as a congregation have our eyes opened to those families or those individuals this morning as well? God, would you enable us to be the body of Christ to one another, to celebrate and rejoice in the love of our mothers, also to weep and to mourn alongside those who experience uh, a bit of grief today. God, thank you for your love, your grace, your care for us. Uh, We pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Luke 20, 41 to 47. As we get started here, I wanna share with you just a little bit about me, Uh, two sort of aspects to who I am. I am intensely competitive. That is a lifelong sanctification process for me learning when, where, and how to channel that and reminding myself that like every game of Uno is not a statement of my worth as a human being. (laughs) At the same time, uh, also very core kind of to my disposition and my temperament is that I really want to be like thought well of, respected, um, thought highly of. And so not long ago, just like a, about a month, maybe a month and a half ago, those two things, my drive to win and my desire to be thought highly of, came into direct contradiction to one another and something had to give. We're playing dominoes with some friends. And normally we play this particular type of dominoes with a group of four people, but that day we had five. And the way that this type of dominoes works, if there are four people, you draw 15 dominoes. If there are five people, it changes and you draw 12. And we play this quite a bit. And so it's just kind of like ingrained inside of me, the start of a new round. I draw 15 dominoes. I get them all laid out and prepared and whatnot. Well, that night I needed to be drawing 12, but I kept drawing 15. That is a competitive disadvantage. (laughs) But there was also something inside of me that when I would realize I had too many, which was never at the start of the round, we'd be a little ways into it. I'd look around and be like, how do they have so few left? I would look at mine and I would, I would realize what had happened. Well, now I don't want to look like a fool and say, pause. This is like the fourth time I've drawn too many dominoes. What do you guys want to do about it? So I came up with a solution that I thought enabled me to preserve both aspects of this, not give up the competitive disadvantage, but also not look like a fool. I just quietly removed three on my own. Yeah. In hindsight, there were better options. (laughs) Because the very last round, 
uh, I realize I have too many. And I go about trying to quietly remove three of them. And I've got one in my hand. It fits in there perfectly. (laughs) My wife heard it click on my wedding ring. What you got there? Well, now I look real dumb. And it just looks like I'm cheating. So that made for great conversation over like the next three days with my wife. But I so, I, I didn't want either thing, I didn't want to lose, heaven forbid, and I didn't want to look dumb. And so I just hid dominoes. Like, what else are you going to do, right? I mean, I thought I had worked this thing out perfectly so that uh, I didn't have to compromise on either side of this thing in my own mind. And instead, what ended up happening was I looked real bad uh, in front of the whole table. And so... <laughs> Hold that in your mind for a moment. Read with me Luke chapter 20, 41 to 47. It says this. Then he said to them, that's Jesus. How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. How then can the Christ be his son? While all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, would you speak to us by your word? Open the eyes of our hearts and minds to receive its truth. Help us to see you as you are, Jesus as he is. God, help us to take those truths by the power of your Holy Spirit, embed them deeply inside of who we are so that we live in response to who you are and to who Jesus is, we pray in his matchless name, amen. Here's where we're headed this morning. We got dominoes clutched in our hands, okay? Truly knowing Jesus empowers us to live truly genuine lives. Truly knowing Jesus empowers us to live truly genuine lives. Now, I want to start by kind of zooming out here. Ancient literature was typically set up in what are called periscopes. What a periscope is, is it's a grouping of a large amount of text, if you will, into similar thoughts. And the reason for that is because there were no printing presses at this time. And typically literature was read out loud. And so a periscope, all held together by one similar idea, could be read in full, and you would hear the main idea of that, and then the reader would stop. Luke chapter 20, through the very beginning of chapter 21, is all one periscope, and it all has one very clear idea. Jesus has authority. That's the whole periscope. He rides into Jerusalem, and he's hailed as king. Kings have authority. He goes straight into the temple and he runs out the money changers. Why? Because that's his place and he has authority. He gives a teaching there about a vineyard owner and the owner's son. Then he's asked a question. It's a cultural question, looking to ensnare him. He does not get ensnared. He's asked a biblical question, looking to ensnare him. He does not get ensnared. And then what does he do? Now he asks his own question, 
Why is it that all of these people say that the Christ, Messiah, is merely the son of David? Then he goes to Psalm 110. That's what the quotation is from. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Jesus is saying, you asked about my authority. Here it is. I am the Lord, Messiah, son. That's who I am. You want authority? There it is. David wrote about it in Psalms. I'm eternal. I'm the son, the Messiah, the Lord. And then there are two illustrations. He looks right to his disciples in that moment. and He says, don't be like those religious leaders. They don't understand my authority and they're hypocrites. And then at the start of chapter 21, he identifies a woman at the back of the temple who's dropped two small coins into an offering bin. And he says, be like her. Totally genuine and transparent in the way that she lives in response to my lordship. It all takes place in the temple. That holds the whole periscope together. And it all takes place under the banner of Christ's authority. That holds the, peris- the periscope together. Whereas we in the modern church, we separate all of that out into various little pieces and then we approach it and we ask the question, what does this mean for me? Luke wrote the entire gospel. He tells you right at the beginning so that you might have certainty about the stuff you've heard about Jesus so that you would be clear about who he is. And the whole periscope here is telling you one last time, this guy's authoritative. He is Lord right before he goes to his death on the cross, he speaks that, tells people it's truth, demonstrates it from scripture, and then gives you two illustrations of how that shouldn't look and how it should look in the life of one of his followers. Luke wants you to see that primarily, not necessarily to read this in all of its little pieces and all along the way, keep asking yourself, well, what about me? What about me? What about me? Luke is saying, him. He is authoritative. He is the Lord. Did all of these things happen rapid fire in like a 20 minute window when Jesus came into Jerusalem? Right, that would be, if we read this and we thought it's just strictly chronological. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Luke's intent is theological. Did all of these things certainly happen in the last week of Jesus's life? Yes. So Luke groups them all together and says, here's one last demonstration of the authority of Jesus, the son, the Lord. Truly knowing Jesus and all of his authority empowers us to live truly genuine lives. Look at verses 41 to 44 again. Then he said to them, how can you say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. How then can the Christ be his son? Truly knowing Jesus, who is he? Jesus is the co-eternal Lord of all, fully divine and fully human, come to save his people. That's a little wordy. It's more verbiage than is typically on one of our slides, but all of it matters. Jesus has displayed that truth repeatedly in his ministry. He's taught it in his preaching. All of his powerful, miraculous work is displaying his lordship. Healing, casting out demons, multiplying loaves and fish, calming storms, walking on water, all of that is to display, I'm Lord of everything. It is subject to my authority. In his preaching, he has proclaimed it, and now he's going to demonstrate it from the scriptures. 
The quote is from Psalm 110, verse one. If you're a note taker and you wanna jot that down, you can go back and look at it. It's a Psalm that David wrote. And Jesus is talking to the scribes. Now, Scott mentioned this last week. We've seen this as we've worked through this. There are multiple groups of religious authorities present here. Sadducees, that's what we saw last week. There are priests, elders, we're told, and these scribes. Scribes were individuals who fancied themselves as experts in the Old Testament law. And so what Jesus is going to do is display the inadequacy of their knowledge. They may know the scriptures well, but they've completely missed the central point. And the central point of those scriptures is that everything is pointing to the truth of the Messiah and that Messiah is now here. And so Jesus asks a question and then he doesn't even wait for them to give an answer. Why is it that everybody keeps talking about the Messiah, the Christ, simply being the son of David? And then he launches in to Psalm 110 verse one. And what Jesus pulls out of that Psalm for us is that what David is writing is like a peek into a conversation among the Trinity. The Lord, Father, declared to my, that's David's, Lord, that's the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There's so much that could be unpacked from that. But at the very least, Jesus displays a few things. The first is this, Psalms are theological truth tellers. Oftentimes we approach them as if they're merely the running thoughts and feelings of David or the other authors. We make a mistake when we approach them that way. Those are there. They can be very powerful. The thoughts and feelings and expressions that David and the authors of the Psalms give, give us language about how we can communicate with and connect to the Lord in the middle of our own emotions, but they never stop there. They always move through those emotions into beautiful truth about who God is. William Plummer in his commentary on Psalms in the introduction says this, no part of the Bible perhaps is better known in the letter and none so little understood in the spirit. We err greatly if we suppose that it is nothing but a record of David's feelings, of David's experiences, of David's praises, and of David's prayers. The hand that held the pen is generally David's, but the subject matter was often far deeper and higher than the history of David. J.C. Ryle says it this way, the book of Psalms in a word is a book full of Christ. Christ in suffering, Christ in humiliation, Christ dying, Christ rising again, Christ coming a second time, Christ reigning over all. Both of Christ's advents are here. The advent in suffering to bear the cross and the advent in power to wear the crown. Let us always read the Psalms with a particular reverence. Let us say to ourselves as we read, a one greater than David is here. That's what Jesus is pointing out. That Psalm is about me. The Lord Father declares to the Lord Son, sit at my right hand. Like That's who I am, Jesus says. The Son is co-eternal with the Lord. That is like the historic verbiage used to explain the Trinity. The Trinity is not a word you will ever find in scripture, but it's a doctrine you will find all throughout scripture. That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-eternal. They are equal in glory, equal in majesty. They're immeasurable, unimaginable, almighty. There are three, but there is one. We don't conflate their persons, nor do we divide their essence. That's the truth 
of the Trinity. And Jesus is pulling that out of this Psalm. It's also important to know if we're gonna truly know who Jesus is, that he's fully human and fully divine. Yes, he is the son of David, but Jesus's point is that he is not merely the son of David. Yes, he is the son of God, but it also matters for our salvation that he is not merely the son of God. He is fully human and fully divine, not half human and half divine, not three quarters human and one quarter divine, or three quarters divine and one quarter human. He is fully both. All wrapped up into one glorious being who has come to save his people. And if we truly know Jesus that way, it empowers us to truly live genuine lives. Because that's not the end of the periscope. That's not where Jesus stops. He asks the question, then he gives the answer without even waiting. Then he looks over at his disciples and he says, don't be like those scribes. While all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, verse 46, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes, who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at banquets, they devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Knowing Jesus as he is empowers us to be honest about who we are. Jesus finishes this section by turning to his disciples and warning them not of the scribes' misunderstanding of Psalm 10, 110, but he warns them about the practice of their lives. He gives five outward signs of their religious hypocrisy. They wanna wear the outward trappings of religious piety, these long flowing robes. They enjoy verbal acknowledgement of their status. They enjoy physical benefits of their status, nice seats in the synagogues, places of honor at banquets. They give lengthy prayers just for show and they oppress and take advantage of the vulnerable. And the hypocrisy of all of that displays the reality that they do not understand who this Jesus is. His lordship has had no impact on the way that they live. Instead, they're hypocritical. They outwardly display a religious posture that does not align with their internal reality. And then Jesus gives the final flourish in verse 47. These will receive harsher judgment. What in the world does that mean? It's important that in areas like this, we don't try to say more than scripture says. Here's what we do know. Jesus in another teaching makes it seem as though there will be different rewards in heaven. All those who are saved by God's grace will be there. We will be eternally satisfied. But it appears as though the biblical picture, both from Jesus and the rest of the New Testament, is that there will be a differentiation in rewards based on faithfulness. Then you get this passage and others that make it seem as though there will be varying levels of punishment for those not saved by his grace. A brief word here. Jesus is amazingly compassionate with those who know and acknowledge the reality of their sin. The gospels give us the full, beautiful, heart-stirring, mind-bending picture of Jesus's gentleness towards sinners. Think about the list. Matthew, the tax collector, 
Zacchaeus, who is extorting people, the woman at the well who's caught in adultery, the sinful woman who's washing Jesus's feet with her tears and her hair, Peter, after he denies Jesus post-resurrection, Saul, when he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, that list could go on and on. But what's most important is this, you, me, all of us. Jesus is amazingly compassionate when we are willing to acknowledge the reality of our sin, when we're willing to repent and turn to him to receive his grace and to cling to him for salvation. The danger is when we choose instead to put on all the outward trappings and appearances of religious piety and not receive his grace for the brokenness that lives inside each one of us. There are two groups that the New Testament makes clear will receive harsher judgment. False teachers, those who lead people astray with their words, and in this passage, hypocritical religious leaders, those who lead people astray with their lives. Why? Because both of those groups are taking the beauty of the gospel and denying it either in word or in action. Rather than seeing the truth of Jesus's lordship, seeing the truth of his authority, seeing the truth of his death and his grace, and then allowing it to change their lives, they make something different out of it and present it to people as if it were truth. In this case, they make outward surface level adjustments in order to manicure their appearance before others. And in next week's passage, the first four verses of chapter 21, Jesus in the same setting is going to see this woman in the back of the temple dropping a couple small coins in. And after saying, don't be like those scribes, he's gonna say, be like her. She gets it. She understands. She's been transformed. Truly knowing Jesus empowers us to live truly genuine lives. This sort of hypocrisy is such a big deal to the Lord because it's as though we're saying, look, I can cover myself. I don't need to be covered by Christ. I can clean up the outside enough that I need not be washed in the righteousness of Christ. I can hide my sin so well that in my moment of judgment, I need not be hidden in the righteousness of Christ. I don't need to repent if no one knows that my sin exists. I don't need a savior if I'm able to convince myself and everyone else that I have nothing in need of saving. I can save face if I just clutch the dominoes well enough. And Jesus, in all of his eternal lordship, is saying, hey, what do you got in your hand there, big guy? What is it? Why is that such a big deal? Because it's an open rejection of God's saving work. In our hypocrisy, there we are, clutching our metaphorical dominoes, thinking that we've got everyone fooled. As if Jesus isn't Lord, fully aware. He can look at that woman and say, I see her heart and I know she's been transformed. And he can look at those scribes and say, I see the heart, not the outside stuff. And I have authority 
authority as Lord, not only to delineate what is and what is not sin, but I also have authority as Lord to forgive it. Co-eternal, fully human, fully divine, come to save his people. And when we truly know him that way, we don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to clutch the dominoes and pray that we don't lose the competitive advantage and also no one thinks you're a dumb dumb. Like that's what we're doing when we try to clean up the outside so much that we deny the need for a savior on the inside. Jesus, God is gentle, he's kind, merciful, compassionate, patient, full of grace for sinners who are willing to acknowledge their sin. It will not be for a lack of love or a shortage of grace that people are kept out of heaven. That will not be the reason why. In many cases, it will be because of their own hypocrisy. It will be because of their own pride in thinking that what ultimately mattered most was covering their own guilt so that the world would think highly of them rather than confessing their guilt so that the high and holy one could save them. A true recognition of Jesus as Lord means that we're willing to recognize that we need to be saved and only he can do so. And when he saves, his grace then compels us into lives of genuine, true discipleship, which includes honest confession and repentance of sin. Look, this passage ought to instill some very sober reflection into the lives of those who lead within the church. After all, Jesus is primarily talking about the religious leaders and elite of his day. And what he's primarily pointing out is not that they couldn't interpret the Old Testament correctly, but that their behavior is the problem. It's ultimately their show of religion and their hollowness on the inside that's going to lead to harsher judgment. You don't have to look very far in the church world right now to find all the evidence that you want that seems to point out Christian leaders who are living hypocritical lives. Now, I want to nuance this a little bit because not every pastor or every Christian leader who gets caught in the middle of sin is openly living a hypocritical life. That would be to say that you've got to be sinless in order to be a Christian leader. That's not true. There's a difference between I got trapped in my own sin and I led a fake hypocritical life. I don't know exactly where that line is and I will not be the one in heaven who makes the determination. But you don't have to look very far to find pastors who are leading what appear to be double lives. Leaders who teach the truths of scripture but then aren't living lives that are controlled by those truths, by those commands or by the fruit of the spirit. You don't have to look very far to read about churches or nonprofit Christian organizations who cover up grievous sin who engage in image management for the sake of the institutional survival of their church or ministry or camp or organization. It's not for me or for anyone else to judge the heart of those leaders or of those individuals, but we can be clear that Jesus says that there is harsh judgment for religious hypocrisy. I don't know what that means in every situation that comes across the news or your social media channel or the latest documentary series on TV or podcast. Here's what I do know. 
that is a strong warning. For genuine, honest, truthful living among Christian leaders in our world. We, and when I say we, I mean the leadership and staff here at LCF and I as the lead pastor, we will likely disappoint you in some way if you're here for more than like a day. We may even sin against you. But we, again, as a staff and a leadership team and I as the lead pastor of this church are committed to being forthright about matters of sin. I have had to sit in staff members' offices and confess or repent of my own sin to them. I've had to sit in our conference room and look our whole staff in the eye at times and confess and repent of something. I've even done so from this spot here in my six and a half years as the lead pastor. My prayer is that the Lord in his grace would continue to to compel that sort of behavior in me and in our staff. The Lord commands that of his people and he warns leaders specifically. And I also pray that should the stakes be raised in terms of the sin at play or the potential damage done to this church, that we would continue to be steadfast in our commitment to transparency and forthrightness on matters of sin. At a corporate level, I think that matters. I think it matters deeply within the life of a church, but I also think it matters deeply in regard to a local church's or the larger collective church's public witness in our world today. Rich Velotis says it this way, the church must never forget that one of the best ways to establish credibility in the world is by routinely and fearlessly confessing and repenting of sin and that we lose credibility by refusing to name our sins. The good news of the gospel is that in the confessing of our sin, we gain. We gain the opportunity to walk in righteousness. We gain the opportunity to right our wrongs to those who have been hurt. And we gain the opportunity to celebrate a savior who has grace for sin. That's the beauty of confession and repentance among God's people. If you're not willing to confess and repent of your sin, what is there for him to save you from? Right? Like if we're not willing to say we're broken and sinful, then we're functionally denying the fact that we have need for a savior. And so this type of space, a church, ought to be the safest place in the world to be honest and forthright about matters of sin. Why? We've all admitted that we're sinful already. At least we should have. That's the means by which you were saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And he did not die on the cross and rise from the grave so that you could receive his forgiveness from sin and then live as if sin were not real. He died on the cross, rose from the grave, and triumphed over sin that he might save you from the eternal consequences of sin and then empower you to walk away from it for the rest of your life. And that requires being honest and forthright about where it shows up in the church collectively, but also in the lives of individual followers of Jesus. I I do think the warning here about harsh judgment is specifically for leaders, but I don't think the encouragement to not be like the scribes is just for religious leaders. Why? Because he turns to his followers and he gives it. 
And so there's something in there for all of us as followers of Jesus. Jesus says, don't be like them. Be genuine, be honest, be realistic about the reality of your sin. There's no need to hide it. No need to save face. No need to image control. No need to wear a mask. The church should be a place where we can name our sin rather than hide our sin. This should be a place where we can be honest about our brokenness rather than trying to sort of clean up the outside of the dish as if nothing were dirty on the inside. This should be a place where we can stop feeling as though the reality of our sin means we'll be rejected by people. God already knows it and he has not rejected you. He knows the truth of all of your sin and he has accepted you in his son. Look at the other people in the room. He's done the same for them. That doesn't mean you need to walk in here on a Sunday morning and come up front and say, pause, Tim, I have some things I need to get off my chest. But it does mean that there should be some group of people within the life of the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, where you can be just totally honest about the reality of sin. I mean, when was the last time you were in like a small group setting or something and it came time for prayer requests and someone said, hey, here's the whole nasty truth of it and just laid their sin out there? Now, why don't we do that? We're very concerned about looking good in the eyes of the people in the room. That's why. We're very concerned about being held in high regard by the other people in the room. Let me tear down that wall. Everybody in here is broken and sinful in ways that would probably make most people blush. And yet that's true for you too. And the good news of the gospel is that that is not a disqualifier from Jesus's grace. It is a prerequisite for Jesus's grace. And the good news of the gospel is that he knows it and he sees it and he sent his son to save you from it anyway. So we can be honest about it. We can acknowledge that he is Lord. We can acknowledge that he is eternal. We can acknowledge that he sees all and knows all, that he can define what sin is, that he's come to die for sin, that he can forgive sin, that he pleads for you in the middle of your sin at the right hand of the Father, that one day he will come back, put an end to sin, glorify you and take you to a place where there is no sin any longer. And if we live lives here and now as though sin is not a reality, we're denying the power of the gospel. It doesn't mean we glorify our sin. It does not mean we coddle our sin. It does not mean that we're just honest about our sin and then plow through in our sin. It means that we're serious about everything that Jesus did in response to sin. We can acknowledge who he is and be genuine about who we are. Amen? That's the good news of the gospel. And Jesus says, if you live a life that denies that, by putting on the outward appearance of religion, but not being transformed inwardly, there will be judgment. That's a stiff warning. It's one we ought to take seriously. And it's one that the gospel allows us to rejoice in because we do not have to do that. We can be honest about the reality of our sin and joyous in the receiving of his grace for it. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus, to truly know who he is and then to truly live a genuine life in response. Before the throne of God above right now, 
you have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives to plead for you. And when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, upward you look and see him there who made an end to all of it. Because the sinless savior died, your sinful soul is counted free for God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, for sending him on our behalf. God, thank you that the eternal Lord of all, the son was willing to take on flesh and humanity to step into this world and to die for his people. God, I pray. I pray that we would be honest about the reality of sin and receive the grace of Jesus Christ once for our forgiveness for eternity and then daily so that we might have power to both confess but also to repent and to walk away from our sin. God, I pray that this would be a place that among this group of brothers and sisters in Christ, we would not feel like we've got to save face or maintain image and clutch to our dominoes and hide them, God, but that we could be open and honest about the brokenness in our lives, that we might receive grace and power to walk away, but that we also might uphold one another as we seek to walk in Christ-likeness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand up and let's sing.